like to invite you to turn with me to the 21st chapter of the Gospel of John, John chapter 21. Some texts in the New Testament uh, seem inappropriate for preaching, and uh, this is one of them in my opinion, not because the passage itself is so difficult to preach on, but uh, what I would like to do is uh, take a long walk uh, along a stream and chat with you about this passage, or build a big fire in the fireplace and put up uh, two rocking chairs, one for you and one for me, and and we could uh, share together our thoughts on this passage of, uh, of Scripture. Uh, however, they pay me to preach, so uh, here goes nothing. Verse 1 of chapter 21. After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, or the Sea of Galilee, and he manifested himself in this way. There's an interesting difference in the way in which our Lord's appearances are described after the uh, resurrection. Prior to the resurrection, we're told that he was seen of men and women. After the resurrection, the uh, the verb is put a little bit uh, different. We're told that he manifested himself. In other words, he caused himself to be visible. Uh, that's a significant difference in my mind. Our Lord was present after his uh, resurrection and until his ascension, but he wasn't necessarily visible. He was just as close to the apostles, just as near to them, just as real, but he was invisible. When he appeared in the upper room, he didn't, uh, as we normally think, uh, come through the wall or through the closed door. First you'd see his leg or some other part of his body and then his arm and then his trunk and and then his uh, the rest of his body. He rather appeared. He was present with them in the room before he saw them, before they saw him. But he made himself visible. The same is true of the disciples who were on their way to Emmaus. And our Lord fell in step with them. And then when they saw his hands as he broke the bread, he disappeared. He had made himself manifest. And then he again became invisible. And I think the same thing is true today. When our Lord ascended, he didn't ascend into outer space. If you read the story carefully, there was a short vertical ascent. And then he disappeared. He had told the disciples he wouldn't leave them as orphans. He would manifest himself to them. He would come to them, is the way he puts it. And he's not there talking about the uh, second coming or his second coming. He's rather uh, describing his coming in the person of the Holy Spirit and his promise that he would be with them forever. Now that, for me, is an encouraging fact to realize that our Lord is here present, just as real as he was in the days of his flesh. It's just that he's invisible. He's with you in your kitchen. He's with you in your shop. He's in your classroom. He's in your car. He's everywhere present. Uh, For me, that truth gives added meaning to our Lord's statement, I will never leave you or forsake you. It's not that occasionally he comes out of heaven and touches down here on earth and makes an appearance uh, as you have a need. It's rather that he is present with you at all times. That's a very comforting thought to me. Now, this text tells us about one of those manifestations. 
Verse 2, there were together Simon Peter, who was the leader of the apostolic band, and Thomas, the doubtful one, called Didymus, the twin, and Nathaniel, who elsewhere is named Bartholomew, and the sons of Zebedee, that would be James and John, and two other of his disciples, possibly Andrew and Philip, typical of the simple, hard-working men that our Lord called to himself. They were together because the Lord had promised he would meet them in Galilee. They had left uh, Jerusalem some days uh, prior to this event, made their way up to the Sea of Galilee, and there they waited for him to put in an appearance. And he delayed. Uh, Delay always seems to be uh, a part of the process of growing up. They waited and waited. He didn't appear. Peter became restless. He said to the other six, I'm going fishing. It's my kind of man. They said to him, we'll come with you. So they uh, took his boat out of mothballs, and uh, they launched out into the Sea of Galilee, and they began to fish. Now, at least four of these people, if we know all of those that were in this group, were professional fishermen, so they knew what they were doing. They launched out into the, uh, into the lake. They began to fish through the night, and they caught nothing. They were baffled and tired, hungry, disappointed, discouraged because the Lord had not appeared. But when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Uh, I camped with some friends. Carolyn and I and her grandchildren camped with some friends this past uh, week at Horse Thief Reservoir. We woke up Saturday morning and we looked out over the lake, and uh, there was a mist, a heavy mist, a fog that covered the entire uh, entire lake. You couldn't see more than 20 or 30 yards into the lake. The disciples were 100 yards or so from shore, and they were unable to identify the Lord. They saw a shadowy figure through the uh, mist, thought that uh, this was some stranger who was out walking in, in the morning, and uh, he called out to them, children, you don't have any fish, do you? The question anticipates a negative answer, no. Uh, the idiom that he used is the same idiom that we use today. You don't have anything to put between two pieces of bread, do you? In other words, you have nothing to eat. Not only had they not caught any fish, but they were hungry and they had no way to satisfy their their hunger. Uh, here are at least some honest fishermen. They answer no. And uh, he calls to them, cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat, and you will find a catch. Don't you love it when people give you advice, give you counsel on your golf swing or your tennis stroke or how to fish a piece of water? But uh, in this case, I think the coin dropped. At this point, the uh, disciples realized that this was the Lord. It was a moment later that John articulated their thoughts, but I think they must have realized who it was because this particular occasion brought to mind a prior occasion, one that uh, Brian referred to a few weeks ago, the story told in Luke 5 about our Lord's call of the four disciples, uh, James, Peter, John, Andrew, who were partners together in a fishing venture. And uh, our Lord used Peter's boat 
as a platform for preaching to the crowd. He asked Peter to push his little boat out into the cove, and he stood on the deck of Peter's, uh, Peter's boat, and he began to minister to this great crowd that had, that had gathered on the seashore. I have a friend who, whenever he preaches on this passage, always likens it to the Lord walking into your office and asking if he can use your desk to stand on while he preaches to the crowd in the, in the office. That's analogous to what, what the Lord did on this occasion. And then uh, our Lord said to Peter, cast out into the deep and uh, let's go fishing. And Peter said, Lord, uh, we've been fishing all night. We've caught nothing. You can see what was going through Peter's mind. He was thinking, Lord, you're the preacher. I'm the fisher. I'll handle the fishing. I'll take care of providing food for us. You do the preaching. But uh, he said, nevertheless, it's your will. I'll do what you ask. They went out into the sea. They let down the net. And they drew in so many fish, they were unable to take them into the boat. He called for his partners. They filled both boats. The boats began to sink. Peter fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, I am a sinful man. I think for the first time in his life, he'd been living his, he realized he'd been living his life on entirely the wrong basis. I know a lot of men on whom that, that fact dawns late in life. They realize they've been living on the basis of their own wits and wisdom and brawn and, and intelligence and personality and, and suddenly it, they realize they've been living their life on the wrong basis all along. The life is meant to be lived in dependence upon the Lord Jesus. And they realize that what they thought was a normal way of living life is basically sinful. They have not reckoned on the presence of Christ. And that was, uh, that was the fact that Peter realized. He realized his sin. And I, I think that when the Lord called from the shore and told them to let down the net on the other side, on the right side, the starboard side of the boat, uh, Peter realized who this was. And uh, the net went down. I'm reading now again in John 21. They cast, therefore, and they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. That disciple, therefore, whom Jesus loved, that's John, the author of this book. John is the anonymous author. He never mentions himself by name. He always refers to himself as that apostle whom Jesus loved, probably because he was always so astonished that Jesus could love a man like him. And uh, when he realized that uh, this was the Lord, he verbalized what the other disciples must have known. It is the Lord, he said. That's just like the Lord to do something like that. And when Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put his outer garment on, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. That's just like Peter. Impetuous Peter, the one who dashed into the tomb while uh, John hesitated at the door. John simply recognizes the Lord, states that it's the Lord. Peter throws himself into the sea. This time he didn't even wait for the Lord to uh, ask him to come or to have him walk on the water. He simply dove into the into the sea and swam the hundred yards uh, between the boat and the shore and arrived on land just a little bit before the other disciples arrived. They cut the little dinghy loose from the big boat and they dragged uh, their fish the uh, hundred yards uh, uh, into shore. And when they got out upon the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid. Our Lord was so... Fond of symbolic action. 
He didn't always explain the symbols, but he used these symbols and metaphors in such powerful ways they penetrated in a way that the words could not. There's only one other occasion in the Gospel of John where a charcoal fire is mentioned. Do you know where it is? It's in the story of Peter's denial. And it's specifically said that Peter warmed himself at a charcoal fire. Remember the story? Some days earlier, Jesus had said to these apostles, the closest friends that he had, you're all going to deny me and run away. And uh, do you recall Peter's response? Not I. Not I, Lord, he said. All these fellows, they may run away, but not I. I will never desert you. And then uh, a few days after that, when they took the Lord into custody and they took him into the house of the high priest, John, who knew the high priest, gained access for Peter. Peter came into the courtyard of the high priest's house and and he warmed himself at, at the fire where the soldiers had gathered, those who were the enemies of the gospel. He, uh, he walked, Peter walked with the ungodly. He, uh, he took counsel with sinners. He sat in the seat of the scornful. He warmed his hands at the fire of Jesus' enemies. A young woman spotted him. Luke says she peered at him. She kept looking, trying to see if he wasn't the one that... She had recognized with Jesus, and, and then she said, you're, you're not the one who was with Jesus, are you? Again, a question that anticipates a negative answer. And Peter said, no, not I. I don't even know the man. And then uh, twice more in the evening before 3 o'clock in the morning, he, he denied the Lord. Finally, the last time he swore and he cursed out loud, and uh, uh, he, he said he had never had any contact with, with this man, and At that point, our Lord looked at him, and Peter buried his face in his hands, and he began to weep. Now, this was his frame of mind when our Lord manifested himself uh, to Peter. He he felt he was a loser. He he knew his limits. He, He realized what a failure he was. He felt utterly, totally disqualified for ministry. He couldn't understand how the Lord could ever accept him back. Uh, He had committed what in his mind was the unforgivable sin. He had denied the Lord under under pressure. There's a wonderful word that our Lord addressed to the women who came to the tomb when he first spoke to them in his risen state. He said to Peter, uh, he said to the women, Go tell the disciples and Peter that I have risen. And then Paul tells us, we wouldn't know this fact if Peter hadn't, uh, if Paul hadn't, uh, hadn't uh, uh, remembered it and, and, and told it to us. Uh, in that passage that we quote about the gospel, the passage that spells out the elements of the gospel, Paul says, it was delivered unto me what I received, that Christ died according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he rose again. We all know that verse and we quote it. The very next verse says, And he appeared to Peter. He appeared to Peter. How how loving and how gracious. This is an appearance that we wouldn't know anything about. Peter doesn't mention it. Only Paul. Our Lord made a, a personal appearance to Peter after the resurrection to assure his heart that everything was all right. He was forgiven. And uh, he was embraced again by, by the Lord. But Peter 
like the rest of us, had a hard time believing it. He struggled because he felt that his sin was so great that it must have disqualified him. And uh, what touched me as I read through this passage this last week was just the thought of that little charcoal fire. I think there's great significance in that fire. Here was Peter who had warmed his hands at the enemy camp, and our, our Lord builds a little charcoal fire. And when Peter steps up on the bank, that's the first thing he would see, and he would see the Lord inviting him to back into the circle. He was, he was accepted. He was loved. Everything was, was okay. I love fires. You know, the warmth, they, they warm the body and they warm the soul. And this must have warmed Peter's soul. And uh, there was some fish on the fire and a little bit of bread. Strikes me that our Lord did not need their contribution. He was able to feed them without the fish. He could have created enough fish for all the disciples had he wanted to at, at that point. Uh, their contribution was unnecessary. Nevertheless, he, uh, he, uh, he, he provided for them and he invited them to bring some of the fish what they, which they had caught and, and share them. And so Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land. Again, this is so much like Peter. Here's this heavy net that they were unable to get into the boat, which took six fishermen to drag, uh, that far. Peter, uh, with a burst of adrenaline must have rushed into the, into the surf and grabbed the net and dragged it up on, on the beach. And when they started to count the fish to distribute them, they discovered there were 153. Now, again, John is so fond of symbolism, there has to be an explanation for this number. He doesn't use numbers uh, lightly. The uh, rabbis say that 153 was the traditional number of ethnic groups in the world at that time. According to Genesis 10, there were 70 by Jesus' time, or shortly before, there were 153 distinct national groups. And I think, again, uh, this is simply another symbol to Peter. I think the number would have, would have, uh, you know, he would have realized what the Lord was signifying. He was not disqualified. Our Lord was going to use him, despite his failure, to touch the nations, to fish and catch men and women, which is precisely what he did. Peter was one who evangelized the region that we now call Turkey, uh, Bithynia, uh, this, the area on the west and the northern side of modern-day uh, Turkey, and whose writings have been used to touch men and women around the world. So despite Peter's limitations, his weakness, his failure, he was deeply loved by God, and he, would, uh, he was not disqualified to serve. Peter had to grow. Just like all of us. Peter started out as a pile of loose rubble, to use Jesus' metaphor. And our Lord was determined to make a man out of him, to make him into a rock. Uh, it, was, it, it took a while, but our Lord never looked at Peter in terms of what he was, but in terms of what he would become by God's grace. Peter had trouble all of his life with this particular uh, this particular weakness. He tended to equivocate under pressure. He waffled. It was difficult for him to, to, to stick to his guns when the heat was on. Uh, it was just a matter of uh, years before he went up to Antioch uh, as a representative of the apostles to look at Paul's work there and to see this magnificent work among the Gentiles. And uh, he began to eat with the Gentiles. 
He had received the vision from heaven that, that assured him that every food was clean. The Lord himself had told him that he was free to eat any food. And so he felt free to eat with the Gentiles. But when certain Jews came uh, up from Jerusalem, from James, who still were eating kosher, uh, Peter, to use Luke's colorful term, furled his sails. He, he pulled back. He wouldn't eat with the, with, the, with the Gentiles any longer. He was afraid of what the Jews would think, just as he was afraid of what this young woman would think if he admitted that, that he was, uh, was a follower of, of Christ. He was not yet a solid rock. In fact, Peter, uh, Paul describes Peter as a hypocrite. He says, you know better than that, and takes him to task publicly. And it's written in the book of Galatians, so the whole world knows of Peter's limitations and weakness. But it's all right, you see? It's all right. Because Peter took his limits to Jesus. He acknowledged his weakness. And God was able to use him anyway. Uh, I think that's why Peter, as almost his last word in his first epistle, says, The God of all grace, who has called us unto eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, will himself perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. takes a while. Delay is part of the process. But our Lord is in the business of making men and women out of us. And along the way, we can take our weaknesses and our limitations and our failures and our sin to him, and we're forgiven, and we can be used. We can still catch men and women. Now, uh, the story goes on. There is this wonderful account of Peter's uh, affirmation of love for Jesus, verses 15 through uh, 17. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me? I tried this past week to envision what that scene must have been like. I think after they ate breakfast and they were filled and satisfied, they uh, must have dragged some logs up to the fire, and they were sitting around the fire on the beach. This would be uh, early spring, March, or early April. There'd be a chill in the air, perhaps still a, a little bit of mist on the lake. And uh, there must have been long silences. I think Peter was reflecting back on what had what had happened, the first draft of fishes, the second miraculous draft, and the, the gracious way in which our Lord had invited him back into fellowship and back into to ministry. And, and there must have been long, awkward silences. I'm sure they were awed by the Lord's presence. They must have seen the, the marks in his hands and in his feet as he was preparing the meal. And in one of those long silences as they were sitting there, I I suppose the Lord, like uh, all people, was poking at the fire with a stick. That seems to be the thing to do when when you're sitting around a campfire. And, And he must have looked up into Peter's eyes and said, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me, Peter? Do you love me more than these? Commentators have long debated Jesus meaning more than these what more than these boats it's possible more than these fish that's possible but I think it's more likely that he was referring to the other disciples 
Do you remember what Peter said? When the Lord said, uh, warned Peter and the rest of the disciples that they would all betray him, Peter said, not me, not I. I would never do that. All of these might betray you, he said, but I will never betray you. And uh, so our Lord is drawing him out. He says to him, Peter, is it really true that you love me more than these disciples? Now, it's also been long debated what Jesus meant when he used one word for love and what Peter meant when he used another word. As you know, his words are used interchangeably through the, through the conversation. Jesus said to Peter, Simon, do you love me more than these? And the word for love here, if you look in the side notes in the New American Standard Bible, it, tra- it, tra- it transliterates for us the Greek word agapao. Agapao is usually used in the New Testament for God's love, divine love, or it's used for love that keeps on giving even though it's unrequited. As John puts it, this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave his son to be the expiation for us. The other word, the word that Peter uses, yes, Lord, you know I love you, is the word phileo, uh, City name, Philadelphia, comes from that term, city of brotherly love. Um, and the distinction that's normally made between those two verbs is that agapao is the higher love. That's the highest possible love, while phileo is a lesser love. We're indebted to C.S. Lewis, I think, for uh, setting that in concrete for us. Actually, one is not a higher love than another. It's just a different kind of love. As a matter of fact, in two places in John, in John 3 and in John 5, we're told that the Father, phileo, loves the Son. Well, what's the distinction? I think uh, the Lord asked Peter, Peter, do, do you love me? Have you chosen to love me? And Peter's response is, Lord, <laughs> you're the best friend I've got. And so the Lord said to him, then feed my little lambs. So a moment or two went by and another awkward silence. And then the Lord looked again at Peter and he said, Peter, do you love me? Agapao. Peter says, Lord, I told you once, you're the best friend I have. And so then the Lord uses Peter's term, not that he condescended. To use Peter's term, I'll just settle for that. But uh, I think it, it brought tremendous joy to his heart to realize the affection that Peter felt for him. Peter, he says, are you really my friend? And uh, John tells us that Peter was a little miffed because the Lord asked him three times. He said, Lord, you know, you know that you're the best friend I've ever had. I love you with all my heart. I would do anything for you. And uh, in each case, as Peter affirmed his love for the Lord, Peter's response, or the Lord's response was, then go out, tend my sheep, feed the little lambs, take care of these little ones who believe on me. Wherever you find sheep, then take care. You see what he's doing? He's saying, Peter, you're not disqualified. What qualifies you to serve is your love for me. Your sin does not disqualify you. What I see is the deep, deep love that you have in your heart. You see, and that's what the Lord wants for all of us. 
That's what qualifies us for ministry. What our Lord wants is devotion and worship and love for him. That's why we stress worshiping Christ so much around here. We believe that doctrine is important. We need to understand the truth, and we want to understand it in its purest possible form. But um, our concern is not to indoctrinate or to present mere facts. We want to look through the facts at the Lord and, and focus on him. We want you to love the Lord with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind. Because ministry to the world grows out of that relationship to Christ. That's the only effective world, the only effective way to reach the world of sheep. You realize that's what people are? That's what we are, and that's what the rest of the world... We're all a bunch of sheep. We're looking for a shepherd. The whole world is looking for guidance, someone who will tell them the truth. Someone will help them to sort out their, their misguided lives and give them some direction and purpose and, and meaning for a living. Uh, and that's why people uh, watch the Donahue show, and that's why they read uh, Abigail Van Buren and uh, listen to anybody, any, any Cracker Barrel philosopher who will, who will tell them what they ought to do. They, they are desperate to know how to sort their lives out, how to make their marriages better, how to put some meaning and purpose back in into their lonely, desperate lives. They're sheep. They're sheep. And we need to feed them. We need to tend them. We need to care for them. Uh, People will line up to give advice and counsel, but where are the shepherds? Where are the people that really care? Who really love and tend the sheep? Well, where does that come from? Where, where, Where do you get that sort of love for the sheep? And where do you get that kind of wisdom to give to people that are looking for guidance? Well, it doesn't come out of merely reading books on counseling or merely reading the Bible. It comes out of a heart of love for the Lord Jesus. It's that you center on him, and as you worship him, and as you look through the word at him, that your life begins to, uh, to deepen. It makes you sweeter. It makes you more gentle. It makes you easier to get along with. It makes you tough when you ought to be tough. It makes you tender when, when you ought to be tender. Truth without love always brutalizes us, dehumanizes us. That's what uh, C.S. Lewis described as that hideous strength, knowledge without love. And the way to couple knowledge with love is to read the word, look through the word, but to look through the word at our Lord Jesus and ask him to make you more like him, to soften your face, as Ecclesiastes put it, to make you a wiser, gentler, stronger person. We've got to center on him. We've got to learn to love him. If that's the key to everything, if that's the basis upon which all ministry takes place, how do you learn to love the Lord? Well, the way to begin, of course, is to read his word. But to read his word in order to see him, the great uh, flaw in the Pharisees' Bible study is that Bible study was an end in itself. That's why Jesus said, you search the scriptures because you think in them you find eternal life and they are they which testify to me and you will not come to me that you might have eternal life. As the songwriter puts it, we have to look through the sacred page at the Lord. And it says we look at him through the word that, that we're conformed 
more to, uh, to his likeness. The second thing we need to do is, is to reflect upon his goodness. There's nothing like becoming aware of how loving and gracious and forgiving he is to, to make us love him more. It's, uh, you know the story of the woman who uh, let her hair down and washed Jesus' feet with this precious uh, perfume. And uh, the Pharisees were scandalized. They said, doesn't Jesus know who this woman is like? If he were really who he claimed to be, he would know what she's like. And his comment to them was, she is forgiven much and therefore she loves much. Nothing like realizing the grace of God to tenderize our hearts and, and make us loving more, love him more. And then the third way to loving more is simply to ask him for love. Uh, I've said this so many times. I hope it's beginning to, to uh, seep in to our minds that uh, sanctification is a gift. Our growth in grace is a gift just as our initial salvation is. Everything we have from God is a gift of grace. We have to ask for it. And uh, as we begin to ask for a deeper, more intimate relationship with him and a greater love for him, he will begin to give us give it. He promises to hear that sort of prayer. There's a song we sing. We sing it so often we may not uh, be aware of the significance of it. It's the hymn, More Love to Thee, and it's basically a prayer. Listen to these words. More love to thee, O Christ, more love to thee. Hear thou the prayer I make on bended knee. This is my earnest plea. More love, O Christ, to thee. More love to thee. More love to thee. Once earthly joy I craved, sought peace and rest. Now thee alone I seek. Give what is best. This all my prayer shall be. More love, O Christ, to thee. More love to thee. More love to thee. Let sorrow do its works and grief and pain. Sweet are thy messengers, sweet their refrain. When they can sing with me, more love, O Christ, to thee. More love to thee. More love to thee. It's a prayer, you see. We need to ask. And he says, if we ask, we'll receive. If we seek, we'll find. If we knock, he'll answer. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, it is our chief complaint that our love is weak and faint. Yet we love thee and adore. Oh, for grace to love thee more. Make of us, Lord, men and women who love your word, but more importantly, love the one who issued that word and the one who speaks it to our heart. Help us to approach your word with hearts that are open, with desire, with the desire to know you more intimately and more personally. Fill us with a, a deep, comprehensive knowledge of who you are. And, and grant to us that deep and abiding love that comes out of the knowledge of your goodness to us. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for the, the response you make to our weakness, our limitations. Thank you for drawing us in and, and granting to us your love, though we do not deserve it. 
And we pray out of that awareness of your goodness, our love for you may grow. As that love works in our heart, Lord, make us a more loving people. We realize that we, that our hearts are cold, there's dross in our own heart and lives, and we, we need that love that sustained you, that, motiva- that motivated you to continue to serve and to minister and to give your life regardless of the response. Help us in these days ahead to center on you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.